and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we are releasing a bonus episode. This is an interview that I gave recently on the Connected by Controversy with Chris White podcast. Professor Chris White teaches history at Marshall University. We actually hosted him on this show, Boundless Body Radio, back on episode 56. We have also hosted him on our sister podcast, which is called the How to Make a Podcast podcast, back in season two on episode 11. Connected by Controversy is a really great podcast that has really interesting episodes about controversial topics, but it addresses them in really meaningful and respectful ways and respectful conversation. In this episode, I talk a little bit about the controversies in nutrition. We spent quite a bit of time talking about plant-based diets, which are very popular now, versus more animal-based diets that we promote here at Boundless Body and what the difference in those is as far as quality. We also talk about the calories in, calories out model of weight management, which as we talk about, can be true, but there's a lot of caveats to it. Uh, We even covered religion, which was really interesting. We talked about the culture here in Utah and my past experience with the Mormon church, something I don't think I've ever really talked about over the air. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. If you get a chance, please rate and review the Connected by Controversy podcast. It really helps them to get more listeners. And without further ado, here's my appearance on Connected by Controversy. Welcome to Connected by Controversy. I'm your host, Chris White. Today, we'll be talking to a friend of mine who has interviewed me on his podcast, Boundless Body Radio, and who I've had on my previous podcast, COVID, in West Virginia. We're basically going to enter into a conversation about all of the controversial ways in which the wellness industry has been discussed in recent years. So it's kind of a back and forth conversation about this very controversial issue in our society, which is what are we supposed to eat? There's a big question mark on many people's minds in our country about that very thing. And this used to be completely natural to us when we were hunter gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years, Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Even going back before that, we were completely dependent on the life cycles of the earth, and we were able to nourish ourselves and prevent the rise of pandemics, and we only had a couple million of our species on the planet at any given time. Now we have corporate agriculture, corporate food production, just like we spoke about with Joel Salatin and Keith Brown a couple weeks ago. And this is a dilemma for health and fitness, as our guest Casey Ruff faces every day with his personal training business out in Utah. Another little announcement before we get into the conversation with Casey Casey, is that we're going to be upping our episodes to two per week because there's just that many great authors and great experts out there that we can discuss on this show connected by controversy. If you have any ideas about great authors or experts who grapple with the controversial issues of our day, don't hesitate to get in touch with me at whitec at marshall.edu. And please feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel, 
Dr. Chris White, and to give us a review on YouTube or on Buzzsprout or Spotify or Audible. And just to remind everybody, too, the whole point of this podcast is really to enter into conversations with people who have really dedicated their lives to trying to understand as much truth as it is possible about these controversial issues that divide and connect us. Because I really do believe that a lot of times we're just arguing over the same things, whether it's about evolution and religion, or it's about any other issue in politics, voting rights, race, gender, sexuality. I think we actually do have a lot more in common with one another than we think, but the rhetoric has become so divided that we're not even talking to each other. And so this is an effort to try and get us talking to each other, but based on some standard, a high standard, in fact, of mutually agreed upon fact-based, evidence-based information. And so much of the problem is that we have conspiracy theories and religion and political party rhetoric that is dividing us. And so I'm just trying to be part of the conversation. I'm just trying to facilitate a higher level of conversation about these issues. Because I think when we talk to each other as much as possible, then that facilitates bonding and connections. And connections are really what have made us move forward as a species, as is the case for all other social animals around the world. So without further ado, I'm going to get into our conversation with Casey Ruff. On my end, I'm recording you as being sideways. That's so weird. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Does this help? Yeah, actually, yeah, that did. Ah, I'm not sideways anymore. Cool. But are you sideways to yourself? No, nope, I'm good. Oh, how funny. funny. I'm sideways to myself in other ways. How's that? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, like the movie. Exactly. Yeah. Do you ever see that? I I have. Yeah, really good. (laughs) Really good. Makes me want a glass of wine. Oh, yeah, definitely. That just, um, that was an area of California that I'd never seen before um, until that movie. I always associated wine country with Napa Valley, Northern California, you know, Mm, but but they're talking about this area in Southern California, which I'd never even heard of before, but it's like this pocket between um, LA and, and kind of Central California that I'd never gone to before. We went there a few years ago, though, and, and saw those same towns. And Oh, wow. Yeah. I actually forgot that about the movie, that it was set there. I would have assumed Napa as well. Right, yeah. I mean, and that's what, uh, you know, I think it makes the, the the movie in some ways unique because, like, your Paul Giamatti's character and his friend, too, are, they're more like a product, I think, of the Southern California lifestyle. It's mm. much more, at least of that period of time, late nineties, early two thousands, maybe early. Yeah. I guess mid to two thousands was made. Um, but, uh, they're kind of like, you know, they live in, you know, there's like a, you know, he, his friend is kind of marrying into a rich family and that's a lot more typical, right. you know, Armenian family. That's where the Armenian population is in California too. And, 
And then Paul Giamatta is this uh, kind of depressed alcoholic eighth grade teacher. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's been a minute, <laughs> clearly. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's things like that, too, that are uh, kind of indicative of uh, of the way that I think society is going, you know, like uh, to connect it to your podcast, uh, Boundless Body Radio. It's, um, you know, you're really talking about uh, lifestyle choices that can be made in an informed manner based on exposure to uh, experts, you know, people who are. Uh, living life in an intense way and uh, kind of fine tuning their choices and their lifestyle choices uh, based on the uh, new available research rather than um, kind of just going along like the Giamatta character, as I see it, he's going along, but um, but he's trying to seek something greater too, you know, through wine and the relationships, he's trying to get something better, but he's kind of, uh, you know, um, Whenever he has a problem, he falls back on on the drinking, which is not a good wellness choice. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great comparison. And, you know, so you know, a lot of the, the people that you interview are people who are just kind of talking about these areas of research that I hadn't thought of before. Each time someone comes up with, uh, you know, that you interview, it's like, wow, how did they get that kind of perspective? Can, can you just kind of talk about some of the latest guests that you've had? Yeah, it's it's really amazing. We're always very, um, I don't know, humbled by the guests that uh, choose to appear on a show, including yourself. This was such a great episode. We loved hosting you as well. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's really cool to find people who have really honed in on one particular area of research and have dedicated their lives to knowing that one thing for you know, as, as deep as they can possibly go. And so they end up being world experts on it and have different perspectives and ways to consider things that most of us might not really consider. One that really stands out that we got on very recently, he just published a book, his name is Dr. Bill Chinler. Um, he's not too far away from you. Um, he's kind of in your area of the world. And he's a, he's an archeologist. Like I said, he just put out a book called Eat Like a Human. And his whole kind of premise is that humans are really just not well designed to eat hardly any of the foods that we eat. So that's kind of a strange statement and really kind of caught me off guard. And what he means is as humans, we have incredibly weak digestive systems. We we don't really ferment cellulose from plants very well. We're not like a cow, but we also don't look like carnivores, right? We have teeth that don't look like carnivores. Our digestive systems kind of match up with carnivore, but are, are you know slightly different depending on the animal. And so how, how are we able to eat hardly anything and, and still be an omnivore? And his whole argument and area of research is all about technology. And again, his argument is that when one primate struck a rock against another rock three million years ago, that basically changed the course of humans for the rest of our evolution. We are able to process our calories outside of the body through technology, through fire, through cooking, through soaking and fermenting and all the different ways that we can um, treat plants to help get rid of the toxins that they carry. Um, Another one of his arguments just says eating a plant should scare the hell out of you. And he eats plants and he's not suggesting that it's not okay to eat plants, but he's suggesting that we need to be mindful about how many plants we consume, which ones we consume, and most importantly, in his opinion, like how we're preparing those. What steps are we taking to make sure that that food has the maximum amount of nutrients for us to absorb and a minimum amount of of anti-nutrients or toxins that can become really problematic for people, especially over the course of a long life? 
So it's just a really interesting concept and a really interesting way to think about our food and the things that we eat. Again, the argument isn't that we're not omnivores, we are, but we don't need to rely on things inside the body to digest and, and prepare our food for us. We do that outside of the body, especially with cooking. I thought just super interesting. Oh yeah, it kind of reminds me of the the way that uh, Michael Pollan put it, and and I want to swing back around to him because he he has a different perspective, I'm sure, than um, than uh, the archaeologist. But uh, but he talks about cooking as almost like an external stomach where you're yeah. going through. Uh, you know, that's the first part of processing to break things down, and and how important cooking is as opposed to what the raw food movement is trying to say, uh, which is you know we should go even further back uh, to before we were, uh, we started cooking food, you know, like that's a, an evolutionary thing that goes back to, you know, homo erectus even. Um, whereas, uh, um, and th that's, what's really interesting to me is that there are so many different perspectives on this, that it becomes very difficult to land on something and say, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to agree with this professor, uh, or I'm going to agree with this author. How do you, yeah, right? Welcome to, <laughs> welcome to nutrition. <laughs> yeah, right. It's tough, man. It's, it's really tough. There's compelling arguments on, on so many different sides. You know, the way I like to describe it when I'm explaining what I do and, and where my expertise is, um, I explain it like, I, I picture me as like a car salesman for Ford or something like that. Like you just wouldn't come to me if you wanted a Chevy. And by the same token, it wouldn't be a really good strategy for me to sell Fords by screaming at the top of my lungs, how awful Chevy is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Everybody kind of has their camp and, and it can, there can be some infighting with, with people. Um, I think it's fair to know that everybody's just a little bit different and they can find whatever works out best for them at the end of the day. That's the best thing to do, but you're right. It's, it's, it's very difficult whether people are doing it intentionally or whether they're not doing it intentionally. There's a lot of deception, um, out in the, the nutrition world, the training world. Um, the food industry is a big thing. Um, you know, you, you can believe what you want about some of those things, but there is a lot of money to be made and a lot of money to be lost when somebody chooses a healthier lifestyle that isn't exactly the conventional way of doing things or thinking about things. So it's tough. I don't blame people for, you know, being really confused about stuff. I mean, look at the, the documentary of Game Changers. Game Changers came out on Netflix, um, you know, three or four years ago. It was, you know, directed, produced by, um, now I'm going to forget his name, um, dude from Titanic. Oh, DiCaprio? Uh, no, no, no. The director for from uh, oh, Titanic. Right. What's his name? Anyway, Cameron. he owns. Yeah, James Cameron. He owns a, or a, he either owns or has a lot of money invested into plant based protein as a supplement, mm. and he produced that show. And they tell a lot of very deceptive stories about people, and and flash really quickly a bunch of studies over and over and over on the screen. So it looks like it's scientifically backed. But when you start to pick those apart one by one and see what's really going on, it's, it's complete nonsense. And again, that's not to say that somebody can't be vegetarian or vegan or plant-based if they want to, but the arguments that are made for, for many different reasons can be extremely deceptive. And it's really challenging for people that are trying to do their very best. They think they're doing, you know, the very best by themselves, getting the best nutrition, doing the best for the planet. And it's just, it, a lot of times it's not true. Right. You know, um, the, the one claim that stood out to me the most, like I could almost buy, 
quite a bit of those claims. Like the, uh, you know, there's a point when um, we're talking about, uh, you know, athletes like in the NFL who are improving because of a vegetarian or plant-based diet. And it's like, well, maybe so maybe they, maybe they had worse diets before, but there's no really compared experiment going on there. Right. We're just supposed to believe that we got, they got better. But when they start getting into the scientific stuff, like uh, he's like he, when he does that workout with the ropes and he's able to go beyond an hour, which is supposed to like seven times longer than he ever was before based on a plant-based diet. Are we really supposed to believe you have a six or 700% increase in your uh, cardio capacity because you switch over to plants? Um, and, uh, and they make it seem very scientific. There's even, uh, one so-called expert who claims that there's no bacteria in our gut that historically that can process meat, you know, yeah. or animal based products. And, um, you know, it's just almost like it's going too far. It's going beyond even what the China study did China study. I remember that activated several of my friends. They got really excited about that. And they just said, well, it's a no brainer. You won't get cancer anymore if you're, or you're less likely to get cancer than if you go to an all uh, plant-based diet. But then this one is, uh, which is, you know, obviously that's not true either, but, but with this one, it, it was almost like just motivating people to, uh, to become vegan instantly because it was such an exciting uh, documentary. Yeah. It was, Schwarzenegger was in it even. Right. Right. No, it was very well done. They got some really high end people to, to, to do it with them. And then they made a really good production out of it. And I mean, there were times when I was watching it where I was like, well, dang, maybe I should be more plant-based or vegan. Like it's really convincing until again, you deep dive into these studies and you find a lot of them are epidemiological, epidemiological, which means you're looking at a population based and making assumptions um, based on things like food frequency questionnaire. So this is a good example of the China study that you already mentioned. It, it's just, you're, you're making, you're looking at a large population, assuming that one thing causes another thing to make a claim when there's no, there's no proof. You, you did not show, you know, any kind of proof. It's like, if you woke up this morning and the sun came up, okay, well, were you the one that made the sun come up? Well, maybe, maybe not. If you die tomorrow and the sun comes up, then we can reasonably say, well, Chris White wasn't the one that made the sun come up. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and we draw a lot of conclusions there. And those, those are the things that get the headlines when the, the science is just really very poor. Um, and, and, and frankly, you know, again, whether it's intentional or not, it's just, it, it, it again, it's bad science. It's a deception. And it makes people think, that certain things are very unhealthy for them. And if they only eat in this, in this way that's being promoted, which is, if you think about it, extremely weird in the way that we would have evolved, people believe that and, and they pay the price for it later on. It's, it's, it's a shame. It sucks. Definitely. I'm glad you brought up that point about, um, you know, that there are, there are people who have, who stand to profit financially from this. And we don't like to think that that's the case, but, um, but if we decide to turn on that Netflix documentary, we've somewhat somewhat committed to watching it. And then it's hard to just kind of sift through. I mean, that's why I think documentaries and films in general are very problematic. When people start watching them, they have to go in with the mindset that this has been produced by people for a certain interest, usually for some type of a gain. Um, and uh, especially if there's a lot of production value behind it you know, like game changers or like the China study. And you can see that they're actually, they're crafting the way that they frame everything, the narrative, the language, the music, 
that's a, a yeah. telltale sign for me. Every time there's music behind something, it's like they're trying to tip the scales. Like, why do you really need that music in there? Don't they already? Shouldn't they already know how to feel? But you're telling them how they should feel gloomy or excited or what have you. Yeah, totally, totally. And you should play gloomy music when you look at the list of all the athletes that appeared in that show, which I have have an Excel sheet of everybody who had appeared in the show and shows what ended up happening to them if they stayed vegetarian, vegan, or if they got injured, if they retired. And it's pretty shocking to see what happened to a lot of those athletes. Maybe they were very temporarily vegetarian and vegan and stopped, or maybe they suffered an injury, which I would argue strongly correlates with the things that they are nurturing their body with. Interesting. Yeah. So there were, uh, so yeah, there's not like a before and after for that uh, documentary. I guess it's going on. You definitely don't want one. You don't yeah, want one. two or three years now. And then Rogan yeah. had, him on and he was debating somebody else um, yeah somebody who was a more carnivore based right chris Cresser, yeah chris Cresser. um this is the only one i'm i'm aware of um chris Cresser believes in kind of more ancestral health um he is a little bit more on the meat is not bad for you side of things although i i know he I, if he still promotes this um i guess i'm not sure but up until you know the point that i last heard from him he he does promote eating you know vegetables and things like that which is totally fine um but yeah, it, it debates are tough in, in that scenario. I feel really bad for Chris Cresser because you can do as much research as you want as you want, but you still don't know what that other person's going to say and and you know what they're going to bring. It's almost like a debate like that you should really treat like um like a trial or a case or something where each side the the you know the prosecution and the defense gets to see each other's materials and you can't pull a fast one on trial day and pull up some new evidence. Like it's only fair if everybody knows what everybody else is talking about. And the dude, I can't remember who made the movie, but um, the dude was a really good debater and, and it was, you know, Chris kind of got murdered in that debate and he, he got talked over and um, yeah, it was, it was hard to watch and debates I think are, are tough also because of that. Yeah, because you can add style to it. And if your personality is more type A, you know, and and you're more inclined to just kind of do a machine gun rapid fire and 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 uh, try and slay your opponent that way, then that's not operating in the same playing field as the other guy who's trying to be more measured in what he says. And he's careful about it. He's not really trying to win the argument necessarily. Um and and credentials matter. Credibility matters. Just because the guy who made it was a fighter doesn't mean that he is um, is adept at assessing all of the science behind this either. Right. right. Somebody like Gary Taubes is, you know, Gary Taubes uh, is uh, that's all he does is to sift through the scientific literature, you know, and um, and historical literature. Gosh. The, the 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 cases that he makes in in all of his books, um, especially about the Pacific Islanders, people who were once just dependent on fish and coconuts, um, you know how their health was so much better than what became afterwards when they were conquered and colonized. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I have one of Gary Tom's books right behind me, uh, the case for keto, and yeah, the 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 depths that these people go to to do this research. Um, is quite profound. I mean, they take a long, long time to research. They are backed up um, really, really well. If you're going to make claims in this space that fat is not bad for you, that meat is the most nutrient-dense food that you could possibly eat, that vegetables in some cases can actually be harmful for people, um, you've got to come with a lot of scientific you know, backing 
to say something like that because you are swimming right upstream with the normal message and the normal dietary guidelines that come out every five years um, from the U.S. government. And so if you're going to make those claims, you got to know what you're talking about. The thing I like about Gary, the thing I like about Nina Teicholz, who's the author of The Big Fat Surprise, is that they're journalists. They have an interest in nutrition. And of course, over the years, they have become experts in nutrition. But originally, these were stories that were given to them to go do. And they just did what a journalist would do is just ask questions. And things start to get a little bit fishy. People are ignoring you, not returning your calls. All of a sudden, you start to realize like something's going on here. Something's being suppressed and not told to the American people. And they just decided to deep dive into it and tell that story. They didn't come from the medical background. They weren't biased. They didn't have any nutritional you know, education, quote unquote, education that was given to them. They had to go research it themselves. And again, if you're going to make some of these claims, which are completely outlandish, if you've been following nutrition for the last you know, 100 years, then you got to come with some science. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, the big fat surprise too. That interview with uh, Nina was incredible uh, because, oh my gosh, it's the first time I really learned about those, um, what is it, the uh, like the Crisco and, uh, you know, like the <laughs> the way that they, it's like industrial solvents basically, right? It's what we've been putting in our body for so long. So gross. And that's yeah, the kind of thing so that, that so many of like in academia, it's so hard for like a historian or anthropologist uh, or um, what have you to get at that kind of a story where you're looking, you know, where you're going into the factories and you're going into a lot of uh, you're interviewing people as well. And um, and and getting kind of the relevance of things right now, um, the story right now, it's and you can specialize it and get paid for that, too. Um, you know, so many times the journalists have uh, have kind of uh, a much um, stronger grasp on this topic. Yeah, totally, totally. And again, they're unbiased. Like Gary yeah. Thomas doesn't get a cut if you get a steak at a restaurant; he's not taking any commission. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and and he isn't going up against uh, you know that in the academic community too. You're going up against the kind of dogma of the academy. And sometimes that even prevents people from doing the kind of research that would challenge that, you know, not all the time. It's just that you have to be prepared to, um, you know, it's like, how is that story going to fit into uh, the broader, broader um, research uh, pantheon? And whereas with, uh, with Taubes and with, uh, oh gosh, there's another one. What is it? Uh, Salt, sugar, fat also. um, Yeah. That, uh, that Dorito effect, I believe. <coughs> What's that? Is that what it is called? It's called the Dorito effect. Is that yeah. right? So, uh, yeah. So, like, well, the book is uh, the book is salt, sugar, fat. I can't. The author's escaping me right now, but um, but he's looking at the you know how these chemistry PhDs uh, from Harvard and all that were able to come up with these chemicals in food, food additives back in the '60s and '70s to create the bliss point and. Yep. Uh, mouthfeel and all that, yep. you know, uh, to get people hooked. Yeah, totally. No, there's a specific, you know, combination of those things that hits dopamine receptors in our brain to be maximally, you know, just, just makes us so happy. And, and that, that mechanism is a really, really good thing. We've evolved with that, which is great. If you think about where, you know, you or I live kind of more temperate climate, I'm looking outside right now, it's about 32 degrees. Like there's not, there's not food. I can't walk around my neighborhood and collect a bunch of food right now, even in a natural landscape. It's it, we're in the middle of winter. So I need to rely 
on any food that I find when food is growing, when plants are growing, that's the time to collect and maybe do some fermenting or soaking and preservation of those foods so that I can eat them at a time like now where those foods are just simply not available. Like in a normal environment, I would not have the ability to walk to a grocery store down the street and buy an apple 365 days out of the year. Like that's really weird. That's extremely bizarre, but that's all we've known coming up in this system. And so we just think that it's normal when it's actually a very, very new kind of a thing. So it's when we, when we see that, you know, we don't see a lot of obesity until the seventies and then it skyrockets. We don't see a ton of type two diabetes until the 60s, 70s, then skyrockets. Same with cancer, same with hypertension, same with all of these chronic issues. It just seemed to be coming up out of nowhere to the point that I think it was 2018. There was a study that was done that showed that um, it was 12 and a half percent of Americans are considered metabolically um, healthy. So 88.5%. And this is a few years ago. I don't think things have gone in the right direction since then anyway, are, are not healthy. So then you have to look around and you have to decide like, okay, well, what changed? What's different now? Why are all these people getting fat and sick when we know studying skeletons from, you know, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, they were robust. They were strong. They, you know, were much taller. Their brain was actually a few hundred cc's bigger than our brains currently, which means our brains are shrinking. Um, and, and you have to look around and say, okay, well, what things have changed? Well, we had an agricultural revolution where for whatever reason, we started to settle down in very specific spots on the planet. And we started to rely on grasses, which we domesticated, but they in turn domesticated us. <laughs> And we could grow our population, we could have foods for that population, but now we just invented, you know, grains and, and all these things to be eating. And so now you have to, you know, you have to protect it. You have to go take over other lands. You need governments, you need militaries, you need all these different things. That changed. That wasn't always like that before. And that changes the formula. Same with the industrial revolution. So you look around and you think, okay, we have not had vegetable oils for, you know, more than 150 years. Sugar was exceedingly rare. It was either seasonal and something like fruit or honey, or it was just really hard to find and only the ultra elite could ever afford any until we learned how to make that production much, much cheaper and get sugar shipped out all over the world. So that's relatively new. And also continuing the domestication of grains. We have grains now that yield way more than crops used to, again, 100 years ago. So all of those things are changing. Those are the new things. Why are we not suspecting the new things as causing all the new problems? But what we're doing is using all the new things to make a bunch of money and blaming all the old things that we've always done for hundreds of thousands of years and saying, oh, well, you shouldn't eat meat. Meat's going to kill you. Like, that's not true. <laughs> None of that's true. We, we would have obligatorily had to hunt at some point. We need animal foods and our bodies are optimized for that. And so it's just it's a really confusing message, but it's a way to make money. We're creating problems for people and then selling them solutions in the forms of pills or supplements or workout programs and diet plans and all these, you know, fake foods and fake meat. It's, it's so bizarre when you sit down and think about it. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Especially now that we have this uh, pandemic, which is really exacerbated by all these metabolic disorders that people have. And I've, I've just been wondering about that so many times, like what would have happened if this specific virus had spread around the world back a hundred years ago, before so many of these changes, or even 150 years ago, yeah. uh, it's just, there's, if we had, even if we had the same scale of, um, of uh, transportation, you know, the speed of transportation and the scale of it that we have today, 
it just couldn't have burned through the population as quickly as it has been because of all these uh, secondary uh, problems that people have. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, it's unfortunate the situation that we were in, but that was always going to be a problem in one way or another. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I wanted to be as respectful as I could when I said this, but I remember saying like, like guys, like this is why we were telling you, we told you, you need to eat well, you need to eat nutrient dense foods. You need to take care of yourself. You need to work out and build up resilience. You need to get outside and get fresh air and sunshine. Like the vitamin D has turned out to be so important with this respiratory infection. Like we were telling you all these things, and this is the reason why you need to be strong and resilient. So when the world turns upside down and something comes up, you can be strong enough to face it. And, you know, some people hopefully took the advice, but unfortunately I think money and industry wins the day. And a lot of people don't ever hear the truth or, or, you know, they are deliberately misled. It sucks. Definitely. And people don't necessarily know how to um, to decide what truth is. I mean, I'm constantly trying to figure it out, too. We have to have kind of a standard for it. And I think one of the cool things is that there are areas of um, of learning where the rubber hits the road, like as opposed to just general philosophy. You know, like if 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 uh, if your guests who talk about the keto or the paleo. Uh, or ancestral um, health, if they just talk about it, but they don't actually, um, you know, experiment, practice on themselves, for example, or if you can't apply it in your own life too, or with your clients, then, then it's not valid. But in an area like wellness, fitness and wellness, you can apply it. Now, maybe they won't know necessarily for decades, how, whether or not they're going to avoid something like cancer or heart disease, that's going to take a long time, but you can see in the way people's bodies transform and their minds transform too. Can you talk like, how is it that you are applying that knowledge from the kinds of uh, people you're interviewing and the books that you're reading to your, uh, to your uh, practice? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, you're right. Um, at, at the end of the day, this is what we call an N of one, or this is, this is just one person has to decide. And I, I, as much as I feel strongly about the things that I eat and the things I promote for my clients to eat, I can't, I can't run their miles. I can't live their life. I can't eat the things that they eat. I can only tell them like, Hey, this is what I would suggest. This is how I feel. Maybe you should try this. Maybe you should try that. At the end of the day, you as an individual has to make the decision about what you are going to put in your body. And that's a difficult decision, but I, I really strongly believe for all the years that I follow different blood markers, you know, different uh, metabolic things that we can measure. I spent my whole career measuring the CO2 coming off the breath, which tells, you know, me and my clients, whether they're burning fat or whether they're burning carbohydrates, we have all these cool tools, heart rate, heart rate variability, all that stuff. I, I really strongly think at this point, the, the best way to feel better tomorrow is by how you feel today. And so I think food is a really unique opportunity that helps show people that they can be feeling better. We're in this spot where some of these chronic diseases and illnesses and, you know, all the things that ail us, they're so prevalent that we think they're normal when in fact, they're just average. The average person is walking around with too much body fat. Maybe they've got skin issues, some type of digestive issue, IBS, IBD, diverticulitis. I'm seeing a ton of, um, you know, maybe they've got allergies. 
maybe they don't have great energy every day at 3 p.m. They're really, really tired and they need a nap or a pick me up or hit a sugar or something like all of those things are so ubiquitous. And, and we look around and see that everywhere. So we just think it's normal when it's just average. Normal is to be thriving, is to have boundless amounts of energy. It's to wake up and not be tired and start your day and feel like you can go exercise. You can go play with your kids. You can go enjoy your life in a state of like gratitude and health. And I've seen so many of those diseases that people say, like, once you have type two diabetes, you're going to have it for the rest of your life. It's absolutely nonsense. I've seen it reversed in many, many, many people. And there's ongoing studies to show that it's way more effective to change a diet than to take any type of medication that we know of to help people out with things like diabetes and obesity. So at the end of the day, people have to decide what they want to believe and where they stand on certain things, but they need to be very honest with themselves by what changes they decide to make and how that is making them feel. You're right. Like, I think a lot of things will take a lot of time and whether somebody dies of cancer or whatever, we, you know, we don't really know, we can't really tell, and it might be too late by the time we figure it out, but we can change how you feel today. And if that makes you feel better, then you have something simple moving forward that you can change how you feel for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, that's uh, an important point. You can actually see the the transformation and feel the transformation once you start uh, losing weight and and feeling your muscles getting stronger, whatever uh, the goal ends up being. Okay. What kinds of uh, different uh, programs do you put people on or do you have like a set program? That's a great question. I don't have a set program. I just, I, I consider having like a bunch of different tools and we like to customize those tools for, you know, what people think they need. Um, so for example, I've been working with somebody recently just in my neighborhood and she said that she got really good success when she was tracking macros. I think tracking macros kind of sucks and is really tedious and I don't think it's necessary at all. That works for her. So we dialed up a plan and said, okay, if you can get your macros somewhere in this ballpark, you should be getting pretty good results. Um, the most successful thing that I've ever done, my, the company I used to work with, we would do a challenge um, called the 90 day challenge. And obviously it's a three month challenge. People pay money to get into it. They do their weigh-ins. We give them a bunch of stuff that you're supposed to give people like food lists and recipes and all this stuff to be able to you know, cook healthy meals and whatever. And then 90 days later, they weigh out and see what the change was. And when the company implemented this, they did quite successfully with it. So they changed it rather than doing 90 days twice a year. They did 60 days, four times a year. <laughs> so mm. Make a little bit more money if you do those programs. Yeah. And as trainers of the company, we were expected to go sell people on the program and get them signed up and get them signed up with us so that they, we could kind of take them through this process of two months of you know weight loss. And it, it was just very difficult. People would weigh in. They would be very excited. We'd give them this big old stack of you know, recipes, lots of vegetables, lots of whole grains. They had to go to the store and shop for God knows how many different ingredients. One of my clients broke down and called me at like 8 p.m. saying she was looking for arrowroot, arrowroot powder at the store and couldn't find it and was so frustrated. <laughs> she was crying right. in the grocery store. So anyway, we uh. had this problem where, where like if you sold somebody on this contest, you weren't going to sell them again for the next one that was coming around in three months. And that's kind of a problem um, when we had specific numbers and goals that we had to set. And I remember one year we had a guy, he did really well. There's Rex and Tucker for the audience. They want to say hi as well. Um, we had one guy do really, really well. And um, he won the contest and he signed up with us. And so we got a lot of you know accolades and recognition, recognition for that. And he did it through this thing called keto. And I had been 
you know, a fan of eating more fat and more protein in a diet for, you know, several years at that point. But it was the first time people were really starting to talk about keto as a diet. What is ketosis? What is ketogenesis? All these terms started to become more popular. So, so my wife was also a trainer. Um, and I decided at that moment that we were going to change our program and just fly under the radar and do our own thing and give people what we thought was going to work best rather than shoving all the stuff that the gym was shoving down other people's throats. We were just going to do it our way. So, um, this definitely wasn't a, a case study of any kind. It wasn't scientific, but we did have, we did have a lot of people that signed up. We were able to track a lot of people using a scale that measured not only weight, but also body fat, which means we could you know, somewhat scientifically validate whether people were losing weight, whether they were keeping it off between contests. And we could show people whether that weight was, you know, just general weight, including muscle mass, water weight, bone density, those kinds of things that you don't necessarily want to lose, or were people losing fat? And all I did during that contest was give them low carbohydrate meal plans that were very simple. They were for two or maybe three meals a day. Again, extremely easy, very few ingredients. They wouldn't have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. We just told people across the board, like find the recipes that are in these simple meal plans that you really like and just eat them. Don't count calories, eat them until you're very full, no portion controlling. We're not going to try to snack in between meals. We just want you to get really full and satisfied on these meals that focus on a lot of protein and a lot of fat. And the results were astounding. We had tracked over a hundred people. Um, I think it was 180 that we, we did in total. We found that our compliance percentage, people that weighed out of the contest that started the contest was much, much higher. We were up in the sixties percent of people that were actually like stick with the program throughout. And we showed uh, it was 98.1% of the total weight that people lost, which I want to say for 126 people, I want to say it was somewhere in the 830 pounds. They had lost 800 and like 20 of those pounds from fat. And so again, this isn't a scientifically validated study, but this is a large group with people with vastly different goals, some men, some women, you know, some weight loss, some wanting to gain muscle, but we showed that you could effectively, very effectively and simply lose weight, lose fat, not be hungry and thrive. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? It was such a cool thing and a cool validation. I knew the program could work, but I had no idea how successful it could be. Man. And that is just so against what people think they need to do. I met so many people who have, who they'll say I'm a vegetarian and they'll say it kind of with pride. And actually I do know some vegetarians like my aunt. Um, and, but she doesn't, you know, talk about it. It's not like a big uh, source of pride for her. And, and she is incredibly healthy in her mid seventies. And um, I think it tends to, as opposed to just the vegetarianism, it's, it's something about maybe portion control or genetics, who knows, but, uh, but a lot of the people that I know who um, who talk about vegetarianism are not really focusing on the healthy part. It's just avoiding meat. And so there's a lot of pizza eating and bread and things like that. And that, you know, that's where you start to get into like the Pacific Islanders problem where um, they're so much reliant on these processed foods that ends up actually causing disease. I, don't, I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I think most listeners can do the thought experiment with me where let's all go and grab lunch. Let's make it a really quote unquote healthy lunch. So we'll go to a place that sells salad. We'll get some chicken breast. 
we'll use a very light salad dressing with, you know, it's, it's filled with like canola oil or whatever, and everything stays kind of low fat, lots of vegetables, the way we're told to eat. And we'll eat that meal. And I would submit that we will leave the restaurant feeling like, okay, I, I feel pretty good. I'm, I'm full. I definitely, you know, don't need to eat anymore right now. How do you feel three hours later? And again, I would, I would submit that most people are probably feeling starving, very, very, very hungry. And now you're probably not craving a salad. You're probably craving something like caffeine, sugar, granola bars. Um, I've seen the way office buildings are stocked with all of this stuff all the time now. It becomes very easy to get into the cycle of up and down and up and down. You're hungry. Then you eat. Then your blood sugar goes up and you feel good. Then your blood sugar crashes and you feel terrible and you need to that pick me up again and again and again and again. And the food companies are so happy to keep selling you foods that will never make you feel full. They will make you be hungry. You will not be able to eat one Dorito. You're not going to be able to eat one bag of Doritos. Like that's the way it happens. And that keeps the system going. And it's only when people start to realize like, wow, I need to become really satiated. What's going to make me so full and feeling so good with energy for hours that I don't even think about food. And then again, I would ask the listener to think about, um, you know, eating an omelet, you know, steak and eggs, something that has a lot of those fats and proteins and you eat them to total satiety. Like the last time you had a steak and you just like, couldn't even eat another bite. You can go hours and hours. You don't even think about food. You don't want to snack. You can go out and do other things like that. That's the kind of feeling that we want people to have. And ironically, that state that the body is in when it's fed fats and proteins makes it more ready to burn fat as a fuel source. And all of a sudden, all of this fuel that you have stored all over your body for years and years and years in the form of excess fat is available for you to burn off. And the body can say, well, great. I don't need to eat. I already ate. I ate to excess. I've got some calories here. Maybe I'll burn those off and then I'll burn these off. And people lean out without feeling hungry. That's like the magic grail of how anybody would want to feel. It's, it's really amazing. And again, we would just say that, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but I think most people could benefit from adding in more of those fats and proteins and just really paying attention to how they feel. I, I can definitely attest to that myself too, where you just don't feel um, like you have to eat anymore. And then, and you can just sense that the, the meat is very slowly digesting in your system. And, uh, and of course the fact that it came from an animal that, uh, you know, basically you're taking all the nutrients that they've consumed in their life, uh, period of life too. That shows the, the nutrient density of eating yeah, that's right. too. That's right. The best way I've heard this described is it's in our same operating system. So an animal is in our operating system. It works well with the way we digest food, with how much stomach acid we have, which the way our small intestines and large intestines are built. It, it just, it jives really well. We're able to absorb, like you said, very nutrient dense foods. And, you know, eating the other things, other plants, it's like, it's a different operating system. It, it may not work all that well because you're not set up to do that. Again, you don't have four stomachs like a cow does in a rumen to ferment all these, all the cellulose and grasses. And, you know, I think in, in the best case scenario, eating a lot of plants and vegetables and things like that can be neutral for people. And I certainly just tell people like, look, if you, if you like certain vegetables, especially if you prepare them the right way, I don't have a big problem with that. That's totally fine. Um, some people just get this look like I'm growing a second, you know, head out of my neck when I tell, tell people the following that some plants can actively be really bad for you. Um, they carry toxins 
like we talked about earlier, that if they're not dealt with properly, they can do a lot of damage in the human body. We interviewed about a month ago, Dr. Sally Norton, or I'm sorry, she's not a doctor. Sally Norton is her name. Um, she is a world expert in oxalates, which come in certain foods like spinach. And they can build up little crystals all over the body over a, a period of time, over a lifetime, that can cause all kinds of problems with people with their vision, their joints, their guts. These things can jam up all over the place. And the body, if, if it's getting too much of, of oxalates, th there's no good way for it to detox all of it out. And so it's really horrific when I hear about people that are eating lots of almond flour, they're doing spinach smoothies in the morning and grinding up a, a bunch of whole other like high oxalate foods. And then they have joint problems later on down the road when they thought they were doing themselves a service by eating all these vegetables. And it's just, it, it can be really problematic. I would really recommend somebody, you know, any listener who's interested in that to go look up that episode and prepare to have your mind blown because it is it, it's shocking the things that she's learned about oxalates and how she helps people get off of them and the results she gets. It's, it's incredible. Man. Yeah. I hadn't even heard of that term oxalates before. So that's great. Oxalates, lectins, phyto, we call them phytonutrients. The mm. truth is plants, plants don't want to get killed and eaten any more than we do. We have technology, we can run away, but a plant is pretty defenseless. And so you really want to be thinking about, okay, which parts of the plant does the plant really want to protect the most? probably roots, probably stems, probably leaves, definitely seeds. Those are going to be where you're going to find the most plant toxins to discourage, you know, small animals or insects or whatever to, to kill them. That's their chemical defense. And with humans, you know, we, we don't have an acute reaction, generally speaking, if we have spinach, there's not enough oxalate in one bowl of spinach. But if you're doing that every single day, you may notice some of those problems, especially when they come from those parts of the plant that really don't want you eating them. Now, something like fruit is totally different. Fruit tastes really good. That's where the seeds are. We eat those. Those seeds are so defense defensive that we just, you know, we get rid of them in the same form that they came in. And for the plant, you just benefited the plant because you probably excreted those seeds somewhere else with a bit of your home fertilizer. And there might be a new apple tree. That's what the apple tree wants to do. So it's just thinking about those things and being really mindful about which plants you decide to include and how you prepare them. That's great. Yeah. I like that. Exactly. You know, another example of, of something that uh, people can learn by listening to your podcast and it's, you know, a lot of the other things that you have on there are interesting too. Like uh, you recently interviewed a gentleman who survived the, uh, the uh, survived nine 11. He was in the North tower. That's incredible. That's this, this is one of those areas that I, I teach about a lot in my class, the history leading up to 9-11 and also the events of that day, um, wow. because it's just so important. Um, and the survivors' stories are, it's, it, it must have been really difficult <laughs> to, to kind of, uh, to imagine what that person was going through, but he was so forthright in what he was saying. You talk about that interview and how you got him on board. Yeah, Kershaw Chauksi. Uh, what an amazing dude. He um he was born in India, um, and he came here for financial success, which he was really good with developing systems behind some of the financial markets to, you know, see trends and things like that. And he was making a lot of money, wasn't particularly happy. It was a very stressful life. And he was in the North Tower of the building when the first plane hit. And, you know, everybody was in complete pandemonium and shock. Security guards were telling people to go to the center of the building, not to go outside because there was a lot of debris flying around. And he just decided to get the hell out of there. So he exited the building just in time to see the South Tower get struck. Um, he, he describes um, 
that he was the last person to get on the very last ferry that left Manhattan. He literally said he had to jump from the dock to the boat to catch the, the, the ferry that goes to Weehawken, New Jersey. And um, yeah, he, he definitely had some trauma after that, which he dealt with with meditation. He, did, he didn't develop a meditation, but he found one and became very passionate about that and now spends his time sharing that message of mindfulness and meditation with the world, which is such an amazing message. He, yeah, such a, a well-spoken, well-spoken guy. Uh, it was a real honor to uh, interview him. I think it's really relatable to health and fitness. I think all of us have different traumas and all of us could use, you know, breathing techniques and more mindfulness techniques and meditation to help us out. And so, yeah, we were, we were grateful. I believe his was one that some of his people um, were reaching out for different podcasts to be interviewed on. And we were more than happy to have him on. It was, it was great to talk to him. Yeah, he was incredibly humble, and you can just get the sense that um, that he really recognizes how lucky he was that he is yeah. to this day. Yeah, to totally. That. Totally. Gosh. Amazing and, story. Yeah, and actually, it occurred to me when you were talking about that example of of the security guards. You know, that happened in both towers, um, and uh, and there are all these stories from people who survived where they talk about security guards or you know, people getting on the PA, people who had some kind of uh, influence, at least getting on the PA and saying, everything's okay, just go back to your offices. And, um, and so, and the fact that some people were like, screw that, I'm leaving, even though there's debris and people falling from above. Yeah, yeah. That's really what I'm so interested, that kind of, that, that decision point in between, what is it that divides the people who decide to discard the authority and make a different choice. And the, and what is it that makes people go, yeah, I'm going to trust this authority. It's, it can't be absolute intelligence. You know, there's probably not something more intelligent about the uh, 3000 or so, or 9,000 or so people who actually made it out of the buildings and the people who stayed in. I mean, a lot of the people who died were above the crash sites in the North tower. So they couldn't get out at all. Right. But a lot of the people were people who actually left and then went back up. Well, some people were rescue workers, of course, but others were people who had who were encouraged to go back into the building because they actually did think it was safe. And then they mm-hmm. died. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think about what you would do in that situation? Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one thing that uh, that I always think about is what if um, especially with the with the firefighters, so many of the firefighters were told in the North Tower to get out and they didn't. Um, they said, no, I've got to save these people in, you know, 10 or 50 floors above. They were so compelled to keep going. Sure. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I think I really like the, the practice of stoicism um, that, that involves negative visualization. So in, in the beginning, this was a little confusing to me and I thought it was kind of dumb, but you really put yourself in this position of imagine, imagine what the worst thing that could possibly happen is or put yourself in a situation that would be absolutely terrible like that one. And it's really unpleasant, but it gives you a chance to consider like, wow, I'm really grateful that I have this thing. I know that, you know, one day my house isn't going to be here. My car is going to be broken down. I'm going to appreciate these things while I have them. And yeah, that can be something we can apply to that is just picturing, you know, what it would be like if we were there and, you know, how would we act? It's an interesting question. Yeah. I'm thinking of the, uh, the man with the red bandana. I can't remember his name now. He had like an interesting, um, name. There's a documentary made about him and hmm. um, he was in the South tower, I want to say. And he was just like this volunteer firefighter, but he was like this young kid who was super fit, super athletic. And he was kind of known for, he wore this red bandana and he would run up 
and down the stairs between a few different floors. The upper floor is like, I don't know which ones, but uh, I think uh, around the crash site on the, on the South Tower. And, and then he ended up dying. But uh, but it was because of that kind of vigor. You know, he felt the vigor. And so he said, I'm going to help these people who can't, wow. who, who are who are stuck and guide them down. That's what he knew. He knew how, which stairwell to get down. And wow. Yeah. And then he ended up dying. And so it's like somewhat, something like 70 some odd people. They say he was uh, responsible for saving. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And so there's, and there's a whole diversity of people that you're talking to here. It's uh, it's just great that, um, that in balanced body radio, you're able to get so many uh, guests that are not just talking about health and fitness, but also uh, things like, like, uh, you know, like virologists, like Rich Condit. Yeah, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was awesome. He was really fun to talk to when things were really confusing during the pandemic. And it, it's interesting, you know, the podcast gives us uh, the ability to reach out to people like him, people like you, experts in their fields all over the world and say, look, would you be willing to have a one hour conversation? And, you know, I, I do a second podcast now called the How to Make a Podcast podcast. So I take people through the podcasting process in case they want to start their own. And one of the things we talk about in that podcast is when you're doing one, you really need to decide, are you going to be more generalized? You're going to be more specific and just understand that if it's more general, you know, you might reach wider group of people, but they might lose interest if you started talking about one thing and all of a sudden you're talking about something that's completely unrelated. But if you're very specific, you know, you might only access a few people, but they might be a lot more loyal because they're super fascinated in what you're talking about. And we just decided early on that we wanted to have a really general um, type of a podcast. We wanted to be able to interview anybody. Um, you know, we've, we've interviewed gold medalist Derek Para in you know, the building where he won gold medal, talking about himself, visualizing every stroke on his skate on all three laps that he had to skate in the 1500 meter where he won gold. And he would do it with his eyes closed at night, visualizing the whole thing, holding a stopwatch. And he would click the stopwatch that ended up matching up exactly with his splits that he skated during the Olympics. I mean, talk about like such a cool story. Um, you know, we, we talked about the virologist during the pandemic and what things we needed to do and what things, you know, were, were being said that weren't necessarily true. And, you know, talking to him about the vaccine really influenced us. Um, again, so many experts in nutrition and, and fitness field, it's, it's been quite a journey, um, and, and a real honor to talk to people. And I mean, when I say like, if, if nobody else downloads and listens to the episodes besides myself, I will be totally happy with that. Yeah, because you can have uh, a, a great, meaningful conversation with someone who can uh, enlighten you, too. Yeah, 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 definitely. And the cool thing is, once it's created, it's created. And so we, we're having so much fun now when somebody says, yo, hey, like, what, what running shoes should I get? Well, we've done three episodes about that. Let, let's give you these episodes that are already done to talk about the structure of the foot and what kind of footwear is best and what things to consider. And then you can go make your own decision. Or if somebody's saying, like, hey, I heard, you know, vegetables aren't good for me. Well, maybe you should listen to this episode with Sally Norton and decide how much spinach you want to be eating raw spinach. And so once those things are made, these conversations like this one, you know, this was nothing an hour ago. Now all of a sudden we've created something. It's pretty cool. And it gets to be shared and hopefully it helps people out. It's, it's great. Definitely. And to that point, the more that I um, listen to podcasts and, and also just that I'm open to talking to people who uh, have something to add to my own perspective. I just realized that the conversations themselves are really important, you know, as opposed to 
consuming a documentary um, or, or watching a film or even reading a book, if you can have a conversation with people about something, you reach a different level of, uh, of understanding too. And that's what I like. That's what I was thinking about with this podcast too. the idea that we're connected by controversy because we're, there's so many issues. I mean, to me, I'm thinking beyond wellness too, like, um, but it's connected to wellness. And that is uh, things like uh, social justice issues and politics and, um, and nationalism and, uh, and the role of the U S military and, and all these things are controversial. And the fact that people have these such diametrically opposed views on them, it's like the vegetarianism versus keto debate. But when you look at abortion, we're still yelling at each other over the same thing. Like people, people want a better life for their children and for the world. And so we focus on this issue, abortion or guns or terrorism. And, uh, and even though we have that diametric opposition, we, I want us to be talking about it at least. Yeah. As much. Yeah. I I love that. I I appreciate the approach a lot. I think all of us have opinions that, that are, you know, strong and we may have different reasons for having those, but I don't think that means that we can't just talk about it and, you know, try to understand the other person. So I think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing and something that's very much lacking in our society. And I think that part of the problem, I don't know if you feel this way or not, part of the problem though, is that from the conservative perspective, and I'm, I'm not conservative and so that's why I'm using that term, but I think sometimes that uh, the progressive or liberal or intellectual perspective talks down to, almost assumes that they know better than the other side. And that that's what's such a big turnoff to people as if to say, you know, um, that, uh, you know, to, to say, well, I've read this book and therefore I know. Yeah. Um, and what we find over and over again, though, is that, gosh, if you live your life like that and you're not really listening to the other side, then you can you can actually corner yourself even more. It's almost like Don Quixote is one of my favorite books. And hmm. that's an example of someone who lived based on his books. And he had this totally skewed vision of the of the world because he wasn't interacting with the real world. It was all happening in his head, you know? So he thought he was superior because he'd read all these books <laughs> before and, uh, and it didn't apply to his reality at all. He walked into a world that was totally different than what he expected, but he couldn't adjust um, to it. So I think that's, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. One of the problems mm-hmm. that we can have if we're just based on books and that's what these, you know, podcast conversations are, are so important. Yeah. I, I think that the social dilemma, um, you know, documentary that came out last year, or the year before did such a good idea. And it was the first time I'd really considered like my Facebook screen is going to look vastly different than your Facebook screen. And like, you realize how they're capturing our attention and making us so polarized about everything. And so just having conversations and listening, truly listening to why somebody feels a certain way, I think is really important today. Yeah. It's almost like an art that needs to be taught to kids. You know, they teach them all these subjects that they have to consume just drink down and then we'll just kind of send you out into the world. But there are no classes on how to be a good friend, you know, or on relationships or on listening to people. It's all about trying to, you know, sell people on who you are almost like we're all <laughs> billboards, you know, we, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do that, then, uh, then you're not uh, somehow I, it's totally different. I mean, when I lived, I lived in Mexico, my junior year in high school and it was just so much different there uh, than it is here. I don't know if it's better necessarily, but it was all about the relationships. Hmm. 
wow. family and friends too. Um, maybe, I don't know, you grew up in Utah. Maybe it's different there too. Cause there's so much, you know, there is so much community there so much in common that people have too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That part I appreciate, but it can also get a little bit, um, it can also get a little bit divided. I, I didn't have this experience growing up, but I know tons of people, like if you grew up in, you know, the state's prominent religion, you know, you might not be able to play with the kids who didn't. There, there was a lot of that that happened around here. So it can get a little divisive. Like I said, I was fortunate to not um, get any of that per se and was able to be friends with whoever. But yeah, there's some tribalism here as well that can be a little bit weird my wife bethany moved here when she was 23 and i just had to explain to her look it, it will take you a little bit longer to find your friends around here they're going to be really good friends when you find them but you know it is just a bit of a divided culture so i think i think there's the image of you know happy families everywhere and that kind of thing but we certainly have our our issues as well a lot of social issues um so yeah it's kind of both ends of the sword i guess right right and so where does she come from um, she was air force. So she was really all over the place. She was born in Germany, but lived in many different States where I grew up primarily here. And so we have totally different experiences. I, I had, you know, friends that I've been friends with since I was five. She's had to make new friends, every new place she's been, you know, we've been married um, coming up on five years and this is the longest she's ever been in one place. And so she has a lot more culture and understands you know, differences in people a lot better. And so it's, yeah, it's an interesting mix. It's been interesting to kind of jive those two out and, uh, you know, compare our different experiences. I bet. Yeah. Someone like that who hasn't been able to maybe uh, put roots down, they can either sink or swim in that environment, right? You can like, cause you can kind of develop a, a shell that says, oh, I'm not going to make friends anywhere. Or you could say, well, I have to learn how to adapt to every new environment that I go into. Yeah, totally. That's exactly what happened. And didn't you, didn't you have a mission experience also when you were 18 or 19? Yeah. So when I was with, I'm, I'm no longer affiliated with the church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons. Um, but yeah, as a young man growing up in the church, you are somewhat expected to do a two-year kind of service mission. Um, and so you submit a bunch of papers to the church. They assign you an area. You have no idea where you're going. You don't get any say in the matter. And so I was called to go down to Florianopolis in Santa Catarina, Brazil, um, which is down in the south. And um, yeah, had a, a really cool experience there. Um, I wish I would have approached things a little bit differently. Obviously, as a missionary, you're trying to get people to join your church. And it, again, it kind of kind of formed this polarity that like, if you are already going to a church that you like, I would just say like, wow, that's dumb. Like you should come to my church because my church is the right one. Listen to a 19 year old white kid from Utah. Like, <laughs> just never really, never really occurred to us. Um, but yeah, it was wonderful people that we got to meet and work with. It's just a beautiful part of that country. Um, so yeah, it was a great experience. Man. Yeah. I've, I've known uh, quite a few LDS and former LDS members who have gone on missions. And that's one thing that, uh, I mean, I've had mixed feelings about it too. It's like, I, you know, cause I had friends that were part of the, the church growing up in Northern California also, and they would try and get me to join, but they also did have more of a worldly view in some ways than some of my Protestant or, or Catholic or even atheist friends, because, uh, because there is that kind of, uh, uh, perception within uh, the LDS church of being connected throughout the whole world. Like they know people have been to all these other countries, or maybe they've been there as well. And uh, even though you're yeah. trying to convert people, you're also, you have to learn how to, you have to learn about those cultures too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's why tech companies are moving here in droves. 
Um, it's why MLMs are so popular here in Utah. Um, you have this, this work base that has international experience and knows how to sell people. <laughs> they know how to communicate with people. And so I think that's a huge reason why a lot of these companies are coming here and Utah is just absolutely exploding with them at the moment. And how, did you pick up Portuguese when you were there or beforehand? Or? I did. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So they shipped us right out to a training center in Sao Paulo. Um, so besides, you know, thumbing through a, a little guide or learning one or two words, it, we were, yeah, we knew nothing by the time we got in the country. It was quite culture shock. Um, but yeah, I'm proud to say that I was able to learn, um, learned it pretty well and actually I'm still fluent. I just ran into a Brazilian in my neighborhood last week and we were able to carry on great conversation in Portuguese and have a lot of fun. So that was a, a cool part of the experience as well. Oh, that's awesome. You were there for how long? Two years? Two years. Yeah, two years. Man. That must years. have been great. When was that? In the 90s? I did 2003 until 2005. Oh, okay. Um, and it was kind of, it was, it was an interesting experience. We always say as missionaries, we always say like, I wouldn't trade that experience for $10 million. I wouldn't do that experience again for $10 million. <laughs> That's a pretty fair way to say it. <laughs> well, I was, well, I was down there. Um, my mom, my mom had had breast cancer several years before, but she was mostly in remission. And when I got down there, um, her cancer got much worse and spread to her brain and they gave her, um, three months to live. And I had only been down there for three months. And so we had a decision to make whether I was going to stay, whether I was going to come home. And I remember talking with my dad and him saying like, look, she's just getting worse. You're only going to see your mom get really sick and not be able to do anything. You might as well just stay down there. Um, so I chose to stay and she ended up getting better. And we had another few good years before she passed away in 2006. So it was, yeah, it was challenging in a lot of different ways, but again, I wouldn't trade that experience now for anything. Right. Gosh. Yeah, just don't make me do it again. Just don't make it. So what was so difficult about it though? Oh my God. Okay. So it's, so the life of, of a missionary, at least where we were, like you wake up at six 30. You don't wake up at 6.31, you wake up at 6.30. You study through the morning for three hours. You have a set time where you're out on the street. We didn't have cars. We didn't have bikes. We walked everywhere. Everywhere we walked. We walked, we walked, we walked. You're going into people's homes. You're trying to convince them to join the church. You have a short period for lunch. You have your afternoon where you're out working. You have a short dinner. And then you're back out until 9.30. Lights out are at 10.30. Not 10.31, but 10.30. And that is six and a half days a week. You are given part of a Monday to do things like send your family an email, um, you know, clean up after yourself, maybe do some meal prep, like do your laundry, which we did in buckets. <laughs> like, like it, it, you're, you're in that world and, and you don't get TVs, you don't get phones, you can't communicate. We, we could call our family two times a year, once on Mother's Day and once on Christmas. And that's it. Like, like besides emails or letters, you're, you're in that world and that's all you can do. I understand that things have probably changed a little bit for people that are doing it now, but it, it's just pure walking and working and trying to get people to join our church. That was it. That was all I did for two years. No vacations, no breaks, no, let's go play at the beach. Like there was none of that. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize that. And is it the same way for people who do it stateside? Uh, I, yeah, it, it should have been. I, and it depends on who is like the leader of your particular you know, mission. Like, I think I was fortunate. The guy who was in charge of ours, he wasn't so pushy on things like how many people you could baptize. So a lot of the problems that the church was having at the time in Brazil is that you would baptize thousands of people into the, the church, but your church attendance would drop, meaning you're just speeding people through this process, being buddy, buddy with these people. So you can get them baptized, but they're not sticking with the church anyway. So what the hell is the point? And, and so 
again, it depends on who is your leader. The people, the, the leaders that really wanted to just show great numbers probably, you know, didn't have missionaries that had a really good experience where ours was like, look, if we don't baptize somebody, that's fine. Maybe see if you can paint their house or, you know, fix their fence or something like do some service and help these people out. And so, and that way I was really fortunate, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a religion. It's, it's a business. Also, they collect tithing and do all kinds of stuff with it and hold real estate everywhere and have that bank account that has over a hundred billion dollars for who knows what it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's just like the food industry. It's just like the fitness industry. It's just a business. If, if I'm selling pharmaceuticals to you, well, I probably want you to be a customer as soon as possible. I want you to be a customer for as long as possible. And so I want you to be really sick at a really young age. And then I want to give you these pills that keep you alive in this unnatural, really sick state for 60, 70, 80 years. And that's how I'm going to make a lot of money. It's just, it's, it's learning to look at, you know, those types of things in those lenses and realize like, Oh, this system is designed to make money for a certain purpose. I'm caught in this system and you take whatever you can from it, I guess. And how long did it take you? Well, I, I should say, um, I mean, anything that you don't want to talk about is just fine, you know. Um, but uh, can you talk about maybe how long it took you to figure out that, that that was actually what was going on? Or did you see that going down there? That I, I didn't know. You're, you're, when, you're, when you're in the system, like we call Salt Lake a bubble for a reason. Like when you're in it, like like the, your friends, you described your friends in Northern California. I already know they're vastly different than the people that came from Salt Lake and are near everybody who is also a member of the church. Like it, it breeds a whole different type of person. Um, people in California, I know are totally, totally different, way more laid back um, with certain things. When I, when I left, it was more like, I just didn't feel like going for one week. And it was like every Sunday, that's what you do. You go to church and it can be like all day. And I just like realized like, wait a second, like if I don't go, nobody really cares. And I can go mountain bike or do something fun that I actually wanted to do. And then over time, you know, once you distance yourself from it, you start to learn, you start to learn the actual history of the way things went down. Wasn't necessarily the same way they taught you as a young kid and taught you about Joseph Smith and how the church, you know, spread from city to city because of prosecution. We were taught it was religious where actually, you know, Joseph Smith was going around, you know, unconsensually marrying a bunch of people had all kinds of different wives and all this stuff. You, you know, the internet was a big problem for the church because people could go out and learn this stuff on their own. And, Oh, this is really nuanced. This wasn't what you told me it was. Um, but the thing that I had the most difficulty with over the years was the active battle against same sex marriages. I, I just, I can't align myself with that. And for an organization that claims to be as close to Jesus Christ as they say they are and to do things that Jesus Christ supposedly did in the Bible that never jived with me that, that Jesus would really care if, if two dudes or two women wanted to get married and not only to be opposed to it because I, you know, you're a church, you can be opposed to whatever you want. If somebody wants to join great, your private institution, you be, you should be able to believe whatever you want, but finding out that they were actively battling that and spending lots and lots and lots of money on proposition i think it was proposition eight in california i i couldn't I, that's not something i can align myself with I, that personally just was not um yeah that didn't jive with me can you think of other people that you knew who had a similar problem around the same time oh tons yeah tons I, of my core group of friends it's definitely a majority of people that have stuck with it um friends family lots of people um yeah, it gets to be really hard to rec reconcile over time, you know, the way they, they, 
you know, treat people, again, the fighting against same-sex marriages, things that happen in the history of the church, how they denounce polygamy so that Utah could be a state. I mean, there's just, there's a laundry list of things that um, people end up finding out. And, and some people, you know, they stay with it and it works really well for them. The, the church does an amazing job, you know, teaching family values and really prioritizes families, which is, you know, great. And they teach, you know, to follow Christ and his teachings. And I think that has a lot of really good things. I look at somebody like my mom, the church was perfect for my mom. She loved it. She went every week. She was, you know, obviously after you die, you're sainted anyway, but she was, you know, she, she really, it really helped her in her life and she loved it and loved participating. And I think those people, that's great. Other people I, I noticed a ton again, especially as, you know, things are coming out on the internet in the last 20 years, like so many people that I know have, have left, you know, either formally or informally. I imagine it's hard to get young people to stay on board with because of the internet like you said this thing like uh, you know people from uh like the millennial generation and uh and gen z they don't accept all this bs um that that the greatest generation was peddling for so long you know and even the boomers um and my generation even we're still kind of contending with um i don't know uh, you're you're in your mid-30s right yeah i am uh well yeah climbing (laughs) 38 oh okay yeah all right. So mid? yeah, we're kind of the same. I'm 47, but like, cool. Uh, but I remember, yeah, too, people, you know, like I never understood why you should, why we should oppose gay marriage. That just didn't make sense. But my parents' generation, it took them a while to, uh, to yeah. accept that. And, but I imagine, you know, people that are in their thirties and twenties and teens, just like, are you kidding me? Your grandpa, why do you still care about this? You know, we've solved yeah. this issue. There's no problems. You guys thought that the world was going to end if this happened and then it happened. And guess what? Like I always like to point out the the most valuable real estate in the country is the most gay friendly place in the country. That's right. right. San Francisco. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) It says something about that Google and Facebook. And then they want to be close by those kinds of places because they don't they want to be friendly to all people. And it's all merit based. Now, there's a cutthroat aspect to it, (laughs) to corporate America that I don't like. But you go there and there are just, a, you know, tons of different shades of, of people's backgrounds and beliefs and and uh, and they and corporate America in that sense, at least they don't care as long as you can do something that's going to be good for the corporation, then uh, then they'll accept it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love that approach. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, definitely. Whereas in places uh, that shall go unnamed, the the more intolerant you are, then the people want to you know, they don't want to stay there. They don't want to invest there as much. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah you see that all over the place. <laughs> but it occurred to me too, when you were saying about your mom too, that it was good for her, that the church was good for her. There are so many good things that religion can provide, but it's almost like a yin yang kind of a thing where there are these positives and negatives or blacks and whites uh, where, and shades that uh, it's like in, in order to get all the good stuff of Mormonism, or Seventh-day Advent, Adventism, for example. Um, the good things about wellness and family, too. In order to get that, then you also have to be exposed to all this other crap that yep. can be detrimental, too. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's the way we were taught to pitch the whole thing. It's it's not it's not all a cart. You can't yeah. <laughs> choose which parts you like and which parts you don't like. So the way we would set this up is we would we would say like like basically like if the book of Mormon is true and the Mormons are the only one that have the book of Mormon, then, you know, 
if it's true, then you have to be a part of this church. This is the only one church, which we were told to tell everybody. All the other churches have part, but they don't have the whole. The, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, believe in the Book of Mormon. We have the whole thing, the whole shebang. So if, if the Book of Mormon is true, that means that Joseph Smith, you know, was the founder and prophet that started the whole thing. And his whole thing was that he had a vision where he saw Jesus and, and you know, God at the same time. And they told him, like, yo, like the real church isn't on the, I'm paraphrasing clearly, <laughs> the real church isn't here, but you're going to be the one to bring our full church to the earth. And so we would set it up logically like that and tell people to go and pray. And if they had good, warm feelings about Joseph Smith having this vision, then all of the other pieces were, you know, by logic also true. B was true. And then step C was true. And step D was true. And so you just had to get somebody to go and pray and ask that question. If they felt really good and tingly, then, then you should get baptized like right now. And that's the way we would try to sell it to people. So yeah, it's really black or white in, in that church. I don't know how other churches do it really, but um, yeah, you have to really kind of accept the whole thing or you have to throw the baby out with bathwater. Man, it's too bad because there is so much value in, I mean, I, I always go back to, but Mormons and uh, and Adventists, because there are studies that show, you know, that uh, things like, you know, that uh, especially, you know, rates of obesity are lower and cancer rates are lower and all that. And um, you it's like atheists can't get that. I mean, I, I consider myself an atheist only in the sense that I just am not convinced by um, the. Uh, the magical aspects. That's how Joseph mm. Campbell, Joseph Campbell puts it like that. Like there's these magical aspects of the religions that I can't buy into because there's thousands of them. And how are you supposed to know which one's right? Kind of like with nutrition, but there are all these truths in there too, on how you should treat people in general. You know, um, when, you, when it talks about the people you should harm, uh, then that's not good. But, um, but then the, there isn't like a non-religious type of group or cultural uh, group of people or community that can provide that same kind of wellness that I've seen yet. And, and so in a way, I, what I mean is uh, that um, there are, we're all trying to seek, I guess, the best type of life that we should lead. I, at least I know I am, I'm one of them and people I've talked to um, throughout my life are, are seeking that too, but it's hard to figure that out on your own. And so if you're born into a religion, then you can get all those benefits uh, from of wellness, health in particular. I'm thinking about the kinds of things that Mormons eat, you know, um, yeah. and the things that they don't eat and the things they don't consume and how easy it is. Well, easier. If you grow up in a church like that and you're hanging out with some friends and they offer you a cigarette or a vape or a joint or a, or a beer when you're 14, you can say it's against my religion and maybe they'll, contend with you <laughs> but yeah. uh, but if you can't say that then you then the peer pressure <laughs> might might, might uh, make you cave in yeah that's funny I, it's funny now that you say that the first time i was ever offered a drink was like kind of later in college <laughs> like I, I, nobody had any of that around you're right it's like product of the environment this is so interesting and ties back a little bit with some of the stuff we were talking about before but do you know about seventh day adventists and their role in nutrition today i not uh, not anything beyond just that uh, there are certain uh, health indicators that they're kind of known for hitting. I'm thinking like in Simi Valley is apparently that there's a, a group over there that's um, better. Is there some kind of a new thing that I haven't heard of though? Uh, it, yeah, it's an, it, it's a really old thing and it, it's 
funny story, and again, kind of ties in with what we were talking about before. There's certain areas of the planet that have more um, centenarians than other places. Um, they, you know, an author who, who looked at this, I think he kind of cherry picked his data a little bit. There were some areas um, like in Iceland that also have high rates of centenarians that he deliberately discluded. But anyway, one of them is Loma Linda in California, and that's an area known for Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and they, they do mostly plant-based. Um, they also avoid alcohol and smoking just like Mormons do. Um, so you have these people eating plant-based diets. And again, if you, if you look at this through the lens of epidemiology, you look at that group and you say, oh, wow, these guys are really healthy. Why are they so healthy? Oh, well, it's because they're eating vegetables. Well, it could also be they're not drinking. They're not smoking. They have very strong social ties, which I think is one of the most important things. Um, there's, there's all kinds of other different things. Almost all of the, the, uh, blue zones that I know of are on some type of incline, meaning people are moving their body weight at least up and down quite a bit. So there's lots of factors, but people, you know, spot those areas and say, oh, it must be because of this one thing or must be because of this other thing when you can't parse that out. You, you can't know that just from looking at an area. But the whole reason that Seventh day Adventists became more plant based goes way back, I want to say the 1860s. I, I, I believe her name was Eileen White who invented it. She had, you know, her visions about the Seventh-day Adventists. And, and as part of what they were teaching, they were, you know, teaching that you shouldn't be sexually promiscuous, but, you know, boys would masturbate or whatever. So they figured out that if they fed um, the boys, rather than feeding them things like eggs and, you know, meat for breakfast, they came up with feeding them grains. And this is in Battle Creek, Michigan. And the Kellogg's brothers were involved in this. Also Seventh-day Adventists. All cereals came from that area and time to prevent children from masturbating. Wow. You can't make this stuff up <laughs> <laughs> and they don't hide it. That's the thing is they don't care. They know exactly what they did. And they publish these kinds of things. The Seventh-day Adventists own tons of TV stations and newspapers and all kinds of media outlets. And they, they almost like brag about the fact that they have changed our nutritional guidelines almost by themselves through what they've, you know, been telling people and teaching people and, and infiltrating, you know, nutritional guideline committees and all kinds of different stuff. And they, they openly talk about it. Such a bizarre, funny story. Gosh, no kidding. Yeah. To reduce a teenager's uh, libido, right. Um, through these uh, obviously not very nutritious foods, although that's you're, what they thought back then. Right. You're healthy, whole grains, eat your Wheaties, like all this stuff. <laughs> Wheaties. Yeah. Crazy. About that. My gosh. Yeah. Wheaties, just Crazy. like Gatorade too. You know, Gatorade is like a obesity causer, you know, it's totally. like eating, like, like drinking Coke too. Totally. Yep. Totally. Yeah. No, exactly. Right. Those are the foods that they know they can make so irresistible to you that are not satiating and don't provide any nutrition, which means you will continue eating and eating and eating those foods, seeking nutrition and not getting any. So you never turn off your hunger. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a great way to make a lot of money. It's a great way to get people really fat and sick. We talked about the pandemic and, and how people have not handled it that well. If you're metabolically unhealthy, it's a, it's a really sad system, but that's what we've made for ourselves. And now I like that you brought up that example of um, Loma Linda. And that's what I was thinking of too, because I've, I've heard that so many times that the, because they have a plant-based diet, that that's uh, leading to the high level of centenarians, but there's so many other factors to it. The community aspect is something that I wish we emphasized more at school from the time that they're young, because the kids are learning that, you know, obviously you let the kids go free when they're four and five years old and they create community on the playground. Uh, but then 
you start assigning grades, you start giving them individual work too, and you start to favor other kids over others. There's all this competition, and then you start to to lose, you know, lose that kind of community uh, in a lot for a lot of reasons. But that is what is keeping you know that that's associated with uh, reducing suicide, uh, suicidal ideation, um, drug addiction, all that kind of stuff is through these. Uh, you know, lack of connections when you start to yeah. see the fraying of these connections. And we are really a super organism, just like, just like bees, you know, you, you put somebody in solitary confinement and that person, I mean, what do they have to live for? And, yeah. and by making kids feel that they're individuals too, that they're not really, it's not about everybody lifting up their boats together. And, you know, that's part of the problem of, of capitalism, I think, unfortunately mm. too. Um, I mean, I believe more in capitalism than in, and much more than in communism, just looking at history's sake. But um, sure. But one thing, you know, like when I went to Cuba to do some research for my dissertation in 2003, even you know, it, I don't think it was the the communist society necessarily that brought people together. But I did find that there was a lot more community there. It was like mm-hmm. they didn't have to think about all the, you know, like if you didn't have a corporate car or piece of clothing or shoes because they didn't have any of that stuff. Uh, you don't have all those little ways of dividing people. Then, mm. uh, then it 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 does something for humanity. I think you know people. Yeah, everybody really pretty much had the same amount of stuff, and so they yeah. were they were much nicer to each other in a lot of Interesting. ways. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think a situation like that with you know a country with mostly closed borders, the same is true with those blue zones that we were talking about. The people that are born there, die there. Like they don't leave. And so I think you develop these deep relationships and also uh, what I would consider like a shared fate, like we're all going through this together. If there's, you know, a hurricane, we're all going to experience that together. And I, I think that does create a stronger sense of community. And, you know, it, I think it's a cool thing now that we get to move around and check out different places, but maybe something is also lost when we're not always staying with the same people for an entire lifetime. It's an interesting, interesting question. Interesting dichotomy. Yeah, definitely. And it leads to this new job geography of jobs, you know, where people are like, well, I can't get a job here. And so I'll go elsewhere. And that fragmentation ruins families, too, especially yeah. if you're talking about a traditional family environment. I always think about West Virginia, which has had population loss over the past 60 years. We've lost wow. four electoral votes since Kennedy was elected. And wow. I thought it was only eight. Wyoming that was losing population. Wow. Yeah. Well, and luckily in the past census, we didn't lose people like the past 10 years, we gained like three or 4,000 people, but for a long time mm-hmm. we were, we were losing. So we're, we're supposed to have four electoral votes. Now we used to have eight and wow. that's because the population has halved approximately. And so, the, you know, so people grow up imagining what state they're going to go to outside of West Virginia. And, mm-hmm. and it, the traditional uh, place in particular uh, is uh, North Carolina. That's what, even when Trump actually was campaigning in 2016, a state senator mentioned, but before he introduced him, he said he's going to bring back coal and our kids who went down to North Carolina are going to come back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And, huh. and I think that shows too part of the reason why there is this pro-Trump wave in the past six years, unfortunately, because that senator you know, he's not, he wasn't talking about the wall. He was talking about the fragmentation of the families that everybody in the audience could identify with that. And of wow. course that's tied in with corporate greed, the coal companies, but 
you know, he was tying it into saying it's the EPA and Obama that's causing these jobs. No, the jobs been leaving since the 50s, in fact, because wow. of mechanization of coal and all that. Wow. Yeah, so interesting. It's like we talked about before, like creating a problem and then selling a solution to the problem that didn't exist before. Like, yeah, good way to make money. Definitely. Whereas if you have a place like, I mean, like Utah, you said oh, sir, there are companies that are investing in the state or there's something... Um, I don't, is your population growing there? I haven't checked. Booming. Yeah, booming. Uh, I, I'm not sure if we're the top growing. If we're not the top, we're very close to the top. Real estate in the you know, the, the Salt Lake area where I am, is uh, it's just ridiculous. We're having tons and tons of people from California move in, especially. Um, you know, I, I try not to tell many people about it because traffic's getting worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to keep it a little bit of a secret, but it's Salt Lake City and the outskirts where we live is just an absolutely amazing place. I mean, you can get to all kinds of different climate zones within a few hour drive if you want. You can get to all kinds of different ski resorts. The recreation is incredible. Um, and corporate taxes are really low here as well. And so we've got massive Amazon warehouses. They are always looking to hire tons of tech companies, tons of startups. Um, the term Silicon Slopes um, rather than Silicon Valley is starting to really take hold. It's something they've, you know, kind of been talking about for the last several years. But yeah, you drive down, you know, the freeway, I-15 freeway corridor, and it's just lined with massive office buildings and all kinds of different tech companies. So yeah, they're drawing a lot of people. It's making the population uh, grow. It's making the population a lot more diverse. So that would be interesting around here to see how that changes the political landscape. Because, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's the church controls all of that. Like they have 80% majority in the state house and Senate. Like anything that a liberal would want to do here is DOA for sure. Uh, at least at the state level. Um, but that'll be interesting to see how that changes as our population changes in the next few decades. Um, maybe, maybe that will change. Wow. Very interesting. Um, well, you know, we're, we're talk about a lot of different things here and and I'm I'm really glad we got a chance to to do this again. I want to encourage uh, my listeners to to check out Boundless Body Radio, three episodes a week still. Yeah, we're still doing three episodes a week. Yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Man, and if you want any kind of fitness and wellness advice as well, you can get in touch with uh, Casey Ruff and his wife, Bethany, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And how often is she also on the show? Well, when, when we started initially, the, the goal was she would be on most of them, maybe not all of them, but at least be on most of them. Um, and, and I always, always absolutely love it when she's on, she asks really good questions. She's a really good listener. And so she adds something to, to the conversation, which I absolutely love, but unfortunately her, her business is just really booming right now. She just simply doesn't have the time to jump on with me as much as she would like to. Um, she does a form of tissue work, um, very similar to rolfing. If you're familiar with that, um, but she's actually stepping on people and having them move through a series of stretches, which is called the Rossiter system. And she does that all day and helps a lot of people get out of pain. And so, you know, good for her. She's, she's definitely found her life calling. Um, it just means she can't be on podcasts as often as I would like her to be on. Right. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to see that uh, her business is booming too, because I know there was a little bit of a question of what you guys were going to do when the pandemic actually hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, we've been we've been with that corporation that we mentioned earlier for a combined 20 years. I, I wasn't going to leave. I had the mindset of like, well, I've you know, I've built up seniority around here, I get good pay time off, all my benefits, I have a steady job, I've got a steady stream of people coming in that I can pitch my services to. But it just 
the, the rules of the game just completely changed during the pandemic. And I think people quickly got used to working out at home and were really comfortable with that. And they dusted off old equipment and we ended up deciding to start our own business just so we could pivot around people's changing behaviors. And now we train people from the safety of their homes. We built our, our basement to be a gym. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's different. It's a different world um, now than it was, you know, pre 2020. And we just had to kind of adapt to that. That's awesome. I can't imagine how many millions of people have had to adapt in that fashion, right? To doing, they're putting their services online and it's just been great. Another example of how, um, you know, how history is so fascinating to study because people will be studying this. Economic historians will be studying how the pandemic shifted the global economy afterwards. Um, and it, it's something that uh, wouldn't have been able to happen. People teaching an online giving services online like this, coaching online, wouldn't have been able to happen with a pandemic that, that broke out in the 80s, for example. Yeah, no. yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I, before we took this call, my client, um, I trained her through the same medium that you and I are talking with. She's in Virginia. I've never physically met her. She's near you. And, huh. you know, technology is a little weird and wonky, but at the same time, you know, if you learn to leverage it, you can come up with new and different ways to do things. And yeah, it's been pretty fun. Well, that's good to know. And, and so I was, you know, I guess I was thinking that it'd be people who are, who are more close by you in Salt Lake. But uh, so if people from my region, the, the West Virginia, Ohio and Kentucky, if they wanted to uh, to check you out and and, um, and hire you um, and learn about uh, your services, how could they find you? Yeah. So our website is myboundlessbody.com. Uh, myboundlessbody.com. You can go there and on the very homepage, very front of the homepage, it'll say book, book now or book session. Just click on that. There's a 30 minute complimentary call that we can do. Um, we'll talk to anybody about anything. We'll give you a half hour. Let's chat about what your goals are, what you're, you know, what you tried. We can talk nutrition or fitness or whatever you want to yap about is totally fine with us. There's an automatically Calendly link and a zoom meeting that gets generated. And we offer that to anybody. After that, if somebody wants to train with us, we can train people virtually. We can come up with plans for them for lifting weights, doing cardio correctly. Most people think that cardio needs to be done at a really high intensity, and they learn, you know, through through education that that working out really hard will burn a lot of calories and burns a lot of those calories from carbohydrates, not necessarily from fat. People learn that they need to do cardio in a lower heart rate zone. Um, but yeah, we do personal training, nutrition coaching, all of that stuff we can do virtually. So yeah, they can just go to our website again. That's myboundlessbody.com. Click book now and book a free thirty minute session. Great. Thanks so much, Casey. And I look forward to listening to your episodes in the future. Thanks for coming on today and, and having this conversation with me. I think uh, it's been uh, very educational for me, as it always is. Well, thank you. It's always an honor to talk with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. And if you like the show, then uh, give us a review. Or if you don't like it, give us a, a comment as well. We're again available on Spotify and on YouTube and Audible and Amazon. Take care, everybody. Till the next one. So thanks again for listening to this bonus episode of Boundless Body Radio, which was my appearance on the Connected by Controversy with Chris White podcast. As we said before, please, if you don't mind, take a second, rate and review Connected by Controversy wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can find Chris White and his amazing work. And if you don't mind, as long as you are enjoying our show, please give us a rating and review on Apple. It really helps to get this passion project out to more people. Thank you very much. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.